Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is John Larroquette. John is, and you probably already know this, the Emmy Award-winning star of Night Court, a hit sitcom from NBC. He's also the Tony Award-winning Broadway star of 2016's How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. He played Carl Sack on Boston Legal, co-created and starred on The John Larroquette Show. He did the opening narration for several, yes, several, Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, and now he's back in Night Court. On the old Night Court, Larroquette's character Dan Fielding was a horny prosecutor. On the new show, he's a graying public defender, and the judge is Abby Stone, the daughter of Harry Stone from the original show. The new Night Court is silly and funny and weird, just like the original show was. It also has heart, real emotional stakes. In this clip, Larroquette's character, Dan Fielding, shares why he decided to come back. Say a lifetime ago, you worked with a guy, right? Had your ups and downs, but on the whole, liked each other, respected even. The job ends, you go your separate ways. Life happens, and you live, and you love, (laughs) and you lose, big time. And so you close off your heart. Then one day, the child of that almost forgotten guy comes to you and asks for your help. Would you take the chance? Would you open that heart up again? John Larroquette, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Hi, Jesse. Thanks a lot for having me. I guess we chose to play a clip with no punchline in it. There are a lot of big (laughs) punchlines in the show. I want to be clear. Yeah, it it sort of became a a romance novel or something. Um, Yeah, there were a lot of laughs. Uh, But that that particular moment, um, I actually wrote that little little, uh, monologue because I wanted it to be understood how uh, the decision that uh, my character has to make about coming back out into life is 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 prompted by the fact that the girl who asks for his help is the daughter of the previous judge Harry Stone. And the only reason he comes out is because he can't leave her to the um, crushing despair of midnight night court in Manhattan. I mean, you had to make a parallel decision. Like you could be sitting with your feet up uh, in a beach house right now as a successful actor of 40 years, um, an actor of 50 years, but a successful actor of 40 years. (laughs) So why did you agree to do a new Night Court? At first, the the objection that I had in my mind was that I, I really hate the idea of being compared to myself 35 years ago. As I've said many times during this process, you know, I can't jump over chairs like I used to or leap across the courtroom in one single bound or tie myself in the knots and do a a lot of the physical comedy that I find funny and interesting and was fairly uh, agile at doing. Uh, And as I talked to Melissa uh, Rausch about this show more and more, and also it's not common fact yet, when I was first approached with this project by her and Dan Rubin, the showrunner and writer, she was not planning to act in it. She was really going to produce it through her company after she had a production deal with after Big Bang, like many successful actors do, uh, after a successful series. Anyway, then I thought, I don't know if this is a good idea. 
at all. And as this is sort of turning in my mind, then then the thought came, well, how often does an actor get a chance to revisit a character that uh, he played 35 years previously and to see where that character is in his life and is there still, particularly considering the fact that it's a sitcom, is there still humor in that character? Is there still a way to be funny in that character considering the changes that would have been made not only in society but in himself as well? And then the um, cherry came when she said, you know, I'm really thinking about this. After a year of talking, she said, I really want to do this with you. And so at that point I thought, oh, okay, I'm sort of stuck now. I have to, I have to say yes to this because of her. And also my relationship with NBC and Warner Brothers was long lived and, you know, and down on the list was money. But not, not, not you know, I didn't need the money, but it certainly it doesn't ever fail one to recognize the possibility of stashing a bit more away and do, and, and work in front of an audience was big, you know, because this was COVID. I had been, I had done, I had not done a four camera for any length of time, for a long time. The last thing I did was um, I was doing a series up in Montreal and had a couple of weeks off and Candace Bergen called me and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I've been working on the show in Montreal, but I've got a couple of weeks off. So she, and she said, come on down, do an episode of the new Murphy Brown with me. So I did that. I flew to New York and worked with her. And that's the last time, and that was years ago that I didn't. And I hadn't done a series in a very long time that was for camera. And I loved that format. You know, I'd done two years on Broadway, so I, in front of an audience is where I think I belong. So the idea of doing it in front of an audience again became uh, appealing. I want to talk to you a little bit about your career before acting, because you were in radio before you were an actor. Did you aspire to be an actor when you were an FM radio DJ? Um, uh, I, I think so. I think I realized, I remember seeing a play when I was like 10 years old, a school trip took us somewhere. And there was a, a, an old auditorium in New Orleans called the Civic, and there would be touring companies that came through. I don't remember the the or, origin of this at all, but there was a play called Charlie's Aunt in which there's a man in drag trying to hide, and so he dresses up like a woman. And I remember sitting in the audience, and the, you know, I'm sure if I read it today, it would be as corny as some of the stuff that I did as Dan Fielding. But I uproariously laughing, and everybody else laughing, and I thought, what a feeling to have to have that effect on people, to make them laugh like that. So I always had that feeling in me is I like to make people laugh, whether it was the class clown or whatever. Uh, and then when the 60s started happening and, I, and music became so important to me, the DJ thing, I was always acting with my voice. You know, I would do voices on the radio. We had a, a vision of, of the future where on Saturday nights we'd tell people, the monster movie's on, get stoned, turn it on, don't put the sound on, and tune us in. And me and my friend Norbert and another guy named Earl would sit in our booth at this station watching the movie and make up stupid dialogue for it. As and you were getting paid to do this? You were a professional disc jockey at the time. $100 a week. This is the golden age of <laughs> FM radio. It was. We had maybe <laughs> it's paying two commercials an hour. at age 25 or whatever. Oh, God. 18. Oh, my God. 18. Yeah, it was $100 a week. And in those days, nobody advertised on FM radio except a couple of head shops in the French Quarter or some record companies because there were a couple of distributors in New Orleans, Columbia and Decca. And at this point, we've got Dylan and Hendrix and FM, I mean, AM radio, Top 40 radio wasn't playing that stuff. We were the only station in town playing that stuff. So we would get commercials for them. But sometimes you'd have a whole hour of no commercials so you could do whatever you wanted. Each DJ was his own music director. It's, oh, what I found in, the, in Record Ron. There was a, a store in New Orleans called Record Ron that was just huge and nothing but albums. And he would buy them by the boatload at, 
Walmart sales and stuff, the promotional ones with the hole in the center, not the center, of course, there's a hole in the center, but in the cover itself, which means it was going to go back for credit because the store didn't sell it. So he had millions of records and we would find all of this crazy stuff and just go play it. You know, oh, here's 10 minutes of Korean wedding gongs. And so that would be played on the air, you know? I'm sure that was very popular. I'm sure you're It right. was, especially when then I would read The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot over it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Old stories, but true stories. So why did you think, when did you start like auditioning for things? What, were you still traveling the country as an itinerant? No. In 1970, summer of 70, I was offered a job in San Diego with a record company, a new record company. And I'd worked for DECA parenthetically when I was a teenager as a promotion assistant kind of guy. And because I was a DJ for all those years, I knew all of the, in those days they were called one stops, right? Where all the record companies would send all of their material and that would get distributed out to stores around the cities. So I knew all those guys that held up those one stops. And the, a fellow in San Diego who had hired a friend of mine to write some music for an artist he had found needed somebody to help set up promotion and distribution. And so my friend called me in New Orleans. I was working in radio at the time. And he said, you want, you know, you offered this job in San Diego. And so I took it, moved to San Diego in the summer of 1970, I think, or 71. Record company was not successful. The only thing it ever actually produced was a record that I produced, which is a children's record called uh, Hugo Hubert, the Rainmaking Hippopotamus, based on a children's story by a fellow named Thorne Bacon. And I did all of the voices, hired a guy to do the music. And it was this cute little thing. That's the only thing that ever produced. Anyway. Quite literally, one night I'm walking through Old Town in San Diego where there are a lot of Mexican restaurants, et cetera, and there's a theater there called the Mission Playhouse. And I stuck my head in, and there were a bunch of actors sitting at a table on the stage reading a play, just reading it. And so I snuck in and sat in the back and felt comfortable, felt at home sort of in that environment. As I was leaving, a woman walked up to me and asked if I was an actor, and I said, no, no, I just stepped in because it's lovely to hear that. And she made mention that she was reading a play the following week and needed another male voice just so she could hear it. Would I like, would I come back and just read the play with them? And I said, yes. And I did. And it happened to be a play by Tennessee Williams, a Bucare, about where I lived actually in New Orleans. And at that reading at that table, I thought, oh, I think I'm supposed to do this. And so I quit the job and moved to LA and started collecting unemployment and, and reading for plays and got a play. And um, at uh, Ron Saucy, who's a big theater man here in L.A. and had been for years, and did the play and the people in that play. So we're going to do another play. You want to do that? And I said, sure. And it was a play by, based on Carl Reiner's life story, uh, Enter Laughing, it was called. And I did that and played the lead in that, a goofy young guy trying to get laid and trying to become an actor. And I got an agent from that play and also met my wife during that play in 1974. And then started going out and doing One Day on Kojak or... One day on Ellery Queen, stuff like that, and just momentum carried somewhat for a while. And uh, all of a sudden, I was a working actor. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with the legend John Larroquette. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is John Larroquette. Among many other roles, John played prosecutor Dan Fielding on the classic sitcom Night Court. He is now one of the stars of a reboot of the series, which is airing on NBC and streaming on Peacock. Let's get into the rest of our conversation. 
John Larroquette, fun fact that I'm sure everyone asks you about is you having done the opening narration for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I happen to have just listened to that because it was a fun fact I learned in preparing for this. I didn't know. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The thing that I was struck by, this is like the early 70s, uh, is you are definitely doing a voice. Like you are trying to be a deep voiced guy in doing that narration. It's true. It's true. Um, I've never, I've never seen the film and I don't think I've really ever heard the recording except when I was doing it for Toby. Uh, but yes, I wanted to be as serious and as, um, senatorial as possible. I think in that particular reading. And I was, as I said, I was, was I 24 then about, about 24, I guess when I did that. No matter how the line ends, you end every line by going down. Yes. Well, it's horror. You have to. You don't go up. I mean, you have to go into the pits. And I was not a trained. Listen, I, I've never taken lessons. I don't, and I'm not saying that how good am I. Look at that. I've never taken lessons. I'm sure that the, um, you know, I just, whatever I did, I, I did from the seat of my pants. John, that's a le- legendary film for a good reason. You're not very good at reading that. <laughs> You're a wonderful actor with a long and well-earned career, but you are not very good at reading it. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe that's why I don't do commercials. <laughs> um, so you met your wife early on in your acting career, and I guess you probably had a family before you had the kind of acting career that you could count on. Yes. Yes. Although our son... My wife had a child when we met, and um, and we got married when she was three. And Elizabeth and I had a child in 1977, our first son. And I was working. You know, my wife was working. Luckily, she had a, a real human job, which allowed me the freedom to go out for auditions and do that sort of thing. And so for uh, about five or six years, we did that. And I took a little time out to become an alcoholic and, and sort of um, not be very responsible. But then... I did a movie in 1980 um, called Stripes, and about a year later, I got sober in the winter of 1982, and then at the end of that year, I got the audition for Night Court. So it wasn't that long before I I could really afford to support us as an actor. So um, you said you took a detour into alcoholism. Do you... Do you feel like casual drinking became alcoholism at at some point in, in that time in your life? No, I think I always drank to get loaded. Although I never drank when I was, you know, New Orleans is a pretty open town, and and there's, uh, there are laws, of course, but you can get to go cups and the bars in New Orleans, and so the drinking is is drive through daiquiri shops. So it's all part of the fabric of that society, which is great. And my family had always had a bottle of wine, but I was not that interested in it. And also by the time I was what, 16 or 17, we discovered weed in the French Quarter of New Orleans, and that to me was far more fun than than drinking. Around 75 or 76, we started drinking heavily and, and, and used it as whatever an alcoholic uses it for, to escape, to feel good, but not know when to stop. And so... And you were, you were married then already? Yes. Yeah, and my wife um, was um, 
understood and just said, well, you know, if you're going to die, you're going to die. It's not up to me. So, and it just went on for a while. It went on for five years, I would say, between 77 and 82. And there were lapses in that and there were spots in that when I'd be okay. I'd be working and just showing up and being responsible, but there were times when I wouldn't be. And then finally one night, I just, uh, it just stopped, literally stopped. So it is a cliche to describe a moment of clarity, but it sounds like you had a very literal moment of clarity. I did. Where were you? Sitting with a friend, snorting Coke and drinking scotch. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a spiritual person. I grew up Catholic and was devout until I was about 12 and realized, hold on a second. And um, I don't know, you know, and only years later or shortly, you know, a couple of years later when I started reading others, views of alcoholism, Carl Jung being a, a major one about how he had seen the only, that these major shifts in perception would happen in certain people when they were drug addicts or alcoholics. It's a major shift. And that's what happened to me. I mean, it was sort of, in one moment, I couldn't conceive of living without a drink and I couldn't conceive of living with a drink in the same moment. And that particular night, not being able to conceive of living with a drink, won. And I got up and left the table and went home. That was it. Did your family believe in it? Yes. I think my wife knew me well enough to see in my eyes that um, I was uh, I was serious about this. Because at some point you had been separated from your wife, right? Yes, yes. She uh, asked me to, she, she said that uh, if you want to die, don't do it in front of the children. Um, and so for a few months that I, I was living in a little apartment at Highland Park. And, um, but once she saw me after that, once I, I came home that night and, um, uh, I think that she felt it as well, that there had been a serious shift in my perception. And so from then on, it was just, um, very serious learning how to live without that. How did you learn how to do things like make amends? Um, I won't talk about that. Um, I was watching the John Larroquette show earlier today. Mm -hmm. I was watching an episode from the first season, and there's a little cold open. Your character is a guy who uh, wakes up from a bender as the uh, and becomes the manager of a bus station. And um, there's like a little cute cold open in this episode that I watched. But the real opening scene is a meeting, and it's you sitting at this long table with. You know, and everybody has those kind of paper cups with the little paper handles, mm -hmm. which was a vivid memory for me. Of I used to go to meetings with my dad because he was a single parent. He went to meetings a lot when I was a kid. So it was like, oh my gosh, those cups with the little paper. Yeah, little handles that can, you've got to fold out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and anyway, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna share this scene from uh, that episode of the show, which I think is the third or fourth episode of the show, um, and, and it's my guest John Larroquette on the John Larroquette show uh, at an AA meeting. I saw this fat kid having an ice cream cone, and I thought you lucky bastard, <laughs> go for it, lick it, relish it. That's how I'd have my first scotch of the day, you know, just a little cold in the lips, and then I'd down it, and it would fill me with, with life. All my problems would disappear, and I'd feel something, and the rest would be so easy. And I looked at that kid, 
And he had ice cream all over his face, and he was licking, licking, licking. I hated that kid because he had what I wanted. I wanted to take that ice cream, shove it in his face, and say, There, how do you like that, fat boy? How do you like that sweet, sticky ice cream now, fat boy? Because if I can't have that feeling, nobody can. <laughs> As I said, I'm sober and grateful. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's funny. I don't. I, I don't. Uh, I don't remember much of that. I don't remember much stuff these days. But I don't, and I don't watch myself. So stuff like that is always a revelation to me when somebody plays something from anything I've done. I mean, what's wild about it is, I mean, obviously you were at a point in your career where you could get a show made because you had been one of the biggest stars on network television. You had a, won a bunch of Emmys. Like Don Olmeyer was going to take your call and say yes. Um, but at the time, NBC was making aspirational social comedies about attractive young people, such as the cast of Friends. And coincidentally, Seinfeld, which I don't think they ever quite understood why anyone liked it. I mean, I don't. I love it, to be clear. But, like, no idea how that was a hit network television show. But, uh, you know, they were making friends in The Single Guy and stuff, some of which was really funny, but was real different from that. So, like, when you turned in your first 13 and, you know, showed up to ask for a back nine, um, what did they think of this sort of melancholic very multicultural multi-ethnic show mm -hmm. like a really unusual <laughs> program for what they were up to at the time i think the um request was could you make it less dark you know i and i put it down to uh ego and greed that i said yeah we i think i think we can do that although that's not the show we sold you but yeah i i, I think so um, and at that point, I think I should have, I, I sort of probably walked away that Don and I should have said, you know what, is, let's not, let's not neuter this. This is what we wanted to do. And if it's not working, I totally understand because also that, that first season I was against Roseanne. So I don't think the numbers were great, but Warren kept saying it doesn't matter. The numbers doesn't matter as long as we think you're doing a good show, as long as you're comfortable with it and, and successful with it in your own world then fine, we'll go more. And and he kept his word. He, we did. I mean, we won another two and a half seasons, but it became something else. Uh, it became more centered. It became cleaner. Um, you know, uh, John Hemingway moved to a nicer apartment and got his hair cut and had a girlfriend. And it wasn't quite the, you know, I remember the first note, and I should have maybe known something about it then, you know, in the first scene of the first episode when he walks into the office and he hangs nails a sign on the on his office wall and the sign in kind of carnival script says this is a dark ride and the Mahalia who was played by Liz Torres phenomenal actress looks at it and go what's that and Hemingway says to her I found that at a carnival but I think it should be hanging at the end of the birth canal and the first note I got was do you have to have the sign on the wall right and I, I went yeah, yeah yeah we do you know and then I just brushed it off but so and Don had written that you know and so we tried, and it was, it, it was uh, I think, again, I still get calls or letters from people saying that we used the, t we used the first 13 episodes in, in rehab and detoxes to show, people, uh, to show people it so that they see the, a guy struggling but finding ways to get through the day. One of the things I imagine about 
doing a new version of Night Court, it's not just that you are revisiting this character, but you are like literally standing in sets from Night Court, or at yes. least recreations of sets from Night Court. Mm -hmm. Most of the main cast of that show has died since you made that show. Mm -hmm. Did you think about what that would be like before you went to work? Well, before I went to work, only Harry had died. Um, when I read the script and realized this was going to be the daughter of Harry Stone, you know, the, and, and the problem with that for me really was that, you know, Harry Anderson and Harry Stone were sort of, they, they were sort of back to front, you know, because uh, Harry's, his his outfits, his comedy, his magic was very Harry Stone and Harry Anderson. So it was the, you know, the other side of a coin, as it were. Although Ryan, when Reiney wrote the script, it was Harry, but it had no no intention of it didn't plan it for Harry Anderson. That just happened and that became Harry's show. Um, so Marky and Charlie were still um, alive when we started the process. And so, and Charlie died the day we were doing the pilot. And Marky died the August of, August of 2021. And so after that point, I felt, I felt very, very, conflicted walking onto the sets obviously because you know i'd sat in a chair where i would sit with charlie or with marky or with harry and just talk about life and we it was a you know in those days when we did that show we were we were young and successful and um everybody was watching us and so we all had babies i mean marky had her first child and harry had another child and elizabeth and i had benjamin and reinhold had a baby we were all living this sort of dream life of a successful television show making a good living and, you know, hanging out together. Cause we were, we hung out together a lot off camera. Uh, and so it was, it was difficult. And, and also there was no, there were two people on the crew who had been part of the original, our script supervisor, Susie and our UPM Pixie, both were part of the original. They were the only people I could look at ever and go, do you remember when that, and there would be recognition. Otherwise, it, you know, it would be maudlin for me to walk up to one of the other actors and go, oh, this is where Harry used to, because it would be, you know, it's, they don't know him. They don't they know the show, but they don't, they don't have that emotional connection that I certainly did with all those people. Was it weird to make a new thing out of that old thing? You know, a bit, a bit, certainly the, I mean, for, for personally, for fielding, I mean, I thought about it a lot and I wrote a lot about it. And the, we actually used a scene from the show as sort of a pitch point when we were, when we were talking to Warner Brothers about this and NBC. And there's a scene between uh, Dan Fielding and, and Harry Stone, and Fielding is in a hospital bed. I don't, I don't remember the circumstances of why, but he was close to death for a minute or something happened. I don't know the setup. Um, and he's miserable, and, and I don't want to live, blah, blah, blah. And Harry says, look, you got a great life. And Fielding says, I don't have a life. I have a lifestyle. And then he goes into his, you know, his, his pitch about, you know how many women I've slept with? You know the sign on the... McDonald's billion service. Let me just say I'm competitive, but in all of that time and all of that, no one ever looked at me and said, I love you. So what, what point is there to any of this? And so when thinking about fielding 35 years later, I thought, well, first of all, he's certainly not going to be the Lothario he was in the eighties. That's just disgusting. Not disgusting, but it's like asking a Basset Honda pole vault. I thought, um, that what happened and what happened, I decided and pitched this to Dan and Melissa and Winston, her husband, who's our producing partner and executive producer on the show as well, that he did find that. He found that person after after the show was over. 
you know, like where did Harry go? Where did Dan go? Where did Christine go? Um, and Fielding found that, and it he had his moment of clarity with this person, and married her, and had a lovely, loving relationship with a human being, um, selfish, unselfishly, um, unselflessly, yes, not selfishly, and it was it was it, it was the answer to his prayers, and then that person died, and so that's what pushed him back into his cave, which he is then pulled out of by. Harry Stone's uh, daughter. There's a part of that that I imagine you have some personal relationship to as somebody who was in love, like messed it up and figured it out. I mean, I'm not going to presume that you figured it out perfectly, (laughs) but uh, I think you and your wife love each other today. Indeed. So, like, that feeling of figuring out how to be with somebody and love them and have them love you is one that you experienced to some extent when you got sober. Yes, I agree with that. And I think that if I were going to write, if it, it, it would be probably a little maudlin, and you can't really flash back on sitcoms like this, but the idea has occurred to me to to see some of that relationship between Fielding and and Sarah, the, the character who we've created as his wife, to where he learns how to like walk, in a way, in in love and walk in sort of a different different life than he had, because it was very important to him, obviously, um, and it also then relieves Fielding of the he doesn't have that that impetus anymore. He doesn't have that drive to be amorous or like I had it, I had that. It was great, and then it, then it's not. So, and I'm old, you know. He's my age, he's 75 years old. He's not a young man anymore at all. And so what's now? Because he doesn't have the ambitions he had. He doesn't have the greed that he had. He doesn't have the, the, the drive that he had. What's left? What's left to be funny? And he's still a bit misanthropic and still thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. And so a lot of the humor comes from that. And he stays outside that circle of this new gang, as it were. But he steps in occasionally to lend a hand or to mock or to scold or to be funny, sort of drifting here, but I mean, it's just, you know, it's a new character, in essence. Same guy, different character. We'll be back in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. They can be anywhere, at your office, in your car, and they are wrong. My mom says that the gray house didn't exist, but she's wrong. He just does it wrong. Someone in your life is wrong about something, something small, Something weird, something vitally important. Only one person has the courage to tell them just how wrong they are. You know what you did was wrong, but your daughter is a liar who eats garbage. (laughs) They call me Judge John Hodgman. Listen to me on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. If someone in your life is doing you wrong, don't just take it. Take it to court. Submit your case at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm talking with actor John Larroquette. Let's get back into our conversation. When you got sober, was the surrender part of it difficult for you? No, no. I think that's I think that's what happened. That's what happened simultaneously. At, at the same time, I gave up. I mean, it's just like no. I just it's not. 
you know, they uh, people sometimes say that uh, you know being sober is just a matter of willpower. That alcoholics don't have willpower, but believe me, alcoholics have willpower. Be ten minutes till two, and they don't have a bottle, and they've got to get to the liquor store, which is twenty minutes away. They'll get there in ten minutes. So it's not a it's not a matter of that. It's a matter of realizing I can't win unless I give up. And that's and again, it was n- no thought process going on there. It just happened. Um, and the cosmic part of this. I don't talk about this either. But I found out later on, uh, because I didn't know this, that I got sober on my father's birthday. I didn't know my father. But I happened to get sober on his birthday. So there was some significance in that to me anyway. That kind of surrender is a necessary part of being a good actor too, I think. There is like a, you know, you can prepare and push and develop skills and all of those things, analyze scripts, figure out beats, put slashes in, you know, in between words and accent marks over iambic pentameters and all of those things. But like, ultimately, even though acting is a, you know, selfish and performative act, you also have to like, you just have to be able to fall backwards a little bit. Like you, you just have to open your heart and, and listen and, and be present. Yes, I, you know that that sounds like a, a, a great explanation of a, a real actor. I'm, I'm <laughs> not sure I am that um, because of everything you were just saying, I kept thinking, but where's the rubber chicken? Um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I, and I say this about myself. I don't, I'm not talking for anybody else, and nor their work, et cetera. But I don't consider it really art as much as it is a craft, a real good craft. If you're good at it, you're really good at it, and I have. I have, I have timing, you know, like Ginger Baker talked about. The time is all that counts in, in musicianships. If you've got time, I'll, even if I hate you, I'll play with you. You know, him and Jack Bruce, prime example. He wanted to stab the guy, but Bruce had time. And I think with comedy, obviously, you have to have time. And if you don't, I don't know if it can be taught. And I've, I think that I have time. I don't, I don't think deeply about stuff. I don't, I don't wear characters. The only time that's ever happened, and I'm not sure if it's, if I, might, if I may digress and just tell a short story. I had never worked in my hometown. Uh, I'd never been offered money to go to New Orleans and do anything. And all of a sudden, I was. I was offered a little independent film that actually my son Benjamin was instrumental in happening because a friend of his was going to produce it, um, In um, a friend of his from Idaho, and um, offered me the lead role in it. And I thought, um, this is this is great. This is absolutely great. Uh, never gone home to work, and here is somebody's going to pay me a good deal of money to go home, live in New Orleans, and do a movie. And I thought, great, I'll be able to go hang out at Felix's Oysters, go get some poor boys, go to go get a muffalata, just hang around in my old hood. And for the month that I was there, I was never more depressed and miserable, I think, in my life. And when I got done with it, I explained it to Elizabeth. Now, I don't know why, but it's just maybe, again, looking at New Orleans and mostly dead relatives, and my best friend had died a few years previous. And um, I thought, well, maybe that's it. And she she thought, well, maybe it's the character you played. And the character I played was a depressive, losing kind of life guy. And I thought, is it possible for the first time that I actually took him home with me at the end of the filming day and just couldn't rise to being at home in New Orleans and having fun? So I don't know, but I don't, I don't you know, things don't stick to me like that usually because the characters I play are, relatively shallow as long as the timing is there and the and the jokes are there 
and I don't mean to belittle my own talent here because, you know, I've done, I won a Tony on Broadway. I worked every, but that was also a comedy. You know, I get up there and sing and dance and be funny. And, uh, but I've done dramatic work. I mean, when, um, you know, when I just, I just, and I didn't read it until someone gave it to me. There's an article in the New York Times about my ventures in, in my career. And one of the people they asked about me was David E. Kelly, who I'd worked for quite a bit. And, um, and David's quote, I'm going to, uh, chop it up here, but it's something to the degree of if you need somebody to be serious, but still be able to find the joke in there, then you hire Laura Cat. And that's where I, I'm always looking for the rubber chicken. And that whatever I do, I'm looking for the rubber chicken. Well, I really enjoyed the new show. Good. Um, got a, You and Melissa are a tremendous team. That's a good, that's a good reason I did it too, because I realized there was a, talk about time. She's got time. The two of you are you're just like, ah, oh, there's a couple of television sitcom stars right there. <laughs> These people are good at this. <laughs> She's great at it. Um, and, and I'm so I'm so grateful to you for taking this time to talk to me. You're welcome, um, Jesse. Admired was, your work for so long. I was I was uh, I was um, not impressed when I heard that it was an hour, um, <laughs> but um, I'm glad that I've, I'm glad that I've sat across from you. It's been fun. It's been, you know, I am I am a closed individual sometimes. So if if I've given you enough to have a decent radio show. Good. John Larroquette. The new episodes of Night Court are airing now. You can watch them over the air on NBC, or you can stream them anytime on Peacock. Somewhere out there in our hearts, Kenneth from 30 Rock is smiling. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Outside my house, the big, giant, old tree has a few branches that are only being held up by other branches. They've been there for like a week. Uh, I I don't know what to tell you about this tree. I'll tell you, I am not going to park my car underneath it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We got booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music composed and provided to us by DJW, the great Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to The Go Team. Our thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. Find us in any of those places. Follow us. We will share with you our interviews. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 